Hello and welcome to Life Changes You. I'm Daniel and I hope you've had a great week. Um, We've had loads of great guests on in the last couple of months. We've got loads more coming, but today we've got a really special guest. It's the CEO of Autism Awareness Australia. It's Nicole Rogerson. So hello, Nicole. How are you? Hello, Dan. Thank you for having me. That's okay. You're in Sydney at home. I am in Sydney at home, I know. You can you can see in the background of the Zoom. Um, it's so strange how you get to see, in the last year, how you just get to see behind everybody's life and their dogs and their children and their mess and I so know. on and so forth. So it's a, it's a little bit of oversharing you wouldn't have had before. <laughs> well, your house is actually quite nice. I tell you, when I record at home, I actually have a blue sheet on the wall behind me because I don't want people to see my personal pictures that are up there. I know. I'm always a bit torn, actually, because it's it's weird. It's my garden and my dog runs around and so on and so forth. It is it's showing off a little bit, but it's just this nice little nook downstairs in my house that I can I can be around the corner and get out of everybody's way. Oh, no, it's brilliant. Look, I, I'm just so glad you came on because uh, when I first wrote to you, I wanted to uh, – I realised that I was talking to a lot of people overseas and I wasn't focusing enough on what was happening in Australia. And as I said to you before we came on, my business is working with people with autism, intellectual disability, mental health issues. And I don't know enough about autism and you are the Svengali, I, I would say. <laughs> oh, my goodness, autism. that's a worry. That's a worry. But, look, you've lived it, you've worked in it, you've created things, and that's someone who can genuinely talk about something. Well, I'll give it my best. I'm certainly, uh, I certainly have been with it for quite a while, so I'll do my best to explain some of it to people because as much as we hear about it more and more, you know, in, in our everyday life, um, people, there's still a bit of mystery around it for some people. It, it is. And, look, I, I think we're now coming into an age where there isn't so much uh, pushback against people with a disability. I think the world has become more accepting. Uh, I still think we have a little bit of way to go, but... Look, let's just see how we go. So, look, could you give me an overview of who you are, what uh, Autism Awareness Australia is, and how you came to be CEO? Uh, Well, as I say, um, I'm I'm the CEO of Autism Awareness Australia. Yes, you are right, but that's not how it all began. Um, It all began probably in 1996 when I had my eldest son, Jack. And I was actually a pretty young mum. I, I was still actually at university when I had Jack. I was the only person in my graduating class to have a cap, a gown and a baby. Um, <laughs> it was pretty unusual in those days. Um, so, you know, I had really just uh, started motherhood and, and I was at the very early stages of my career. And, look, I, I certainly had been working, but having done nothing long enough to be truly a specialist or, or key at anything. And, and Jack was diagnosed in 1999 and that all of a sudden changed the trajectory of where I thought it was all going to go for me. Um, I was really lucky enough at the time that my husband was working uh, in a job that could afford me to take some time off work and navigate how we were going to do this. Because, of course, when a child's diagnosed with autism, you know, their families are often left thinking, okay, what do I do now? It's it's not like a medical diagnosis where you, you know, you get diagnosed with a particular condition and there's a doctor saying, okay, you've got to take three red tablets and two yellow ones. You know, yeah. it's not like that at all. It's all of a sudden, you know, good luck with that. And um, so I was in that fortunate position to be able to take a, a couple of years and work with Jack and build a team of therapists around him and to begin his early intervention journey. So, so look, I knew nothing about autism and was learning it 
like any other parent does from the ground up. And and keeping in mind, this was kind of the early days of the internet, yeah. right? So it was like there was no Google. It was like Yahoo groups and and, and just trying to get any bit of information you could. Yeah. Um, so really it was only after, you know, probably three years or four years of Jack being in therapy, it dawned on me, I just, I felt terrible that I'd managed to figure this out. And what I'd figured out is that to help Jack, what I needed to do the most was to teach him things he didn't know, to stuff that wasn't coming to him naturally. It was like, I could see he could learn. He just couldn't learn like other kids were learning. So it was, what can I do to kickstart it so that he can have as many skills as possible so he can have as much, get as much out of life as, as possible. So I figured it out. I put this team together. Everybody was working together nicely. And then over the time, I just felt unbelievably guilty. Like how come myself and a handful of Sydney families had figured this out and could work this out, but that wasn't available to other people. So I, and and the other thing I could see is it was a very fragmented industry. You know, this is obviously many years before the NDIS was ever going to arrive. So you had therapists and workers working in little pockets, but if you didn't know somebody who didn't know somebody who had that number, who had that availability, it was all so haphazard. Yeah. And in my mind, I just kept thinking, this is, we're never going to build a genuine support around our kids if we don't start organising this a little bit better. So I went with um, one of Jack's leading clinicians at the time, a woman called Elizabeth Watson, and we opened the Lizard Children's Centre. And um, I did that for the next 15 years. So it was really um, growing services and and formalising that early intervention for kids. So just somewhere in the middle of that 15 years, I felt fairly guilty again. Um, I've got a lot of guilt that calls me <laughs> on. Um, I felt pretty guilty that, hang on, I had this little clinic in Sydney. We eventually opened one in Melbourne and Adelaide, but I had this little one in Sydney that was, that was doing really well and helping people. But how were we going to take all the good stuff we knew that can help people with autism and how do we take it more broadly to the Australian community and do that for like nothing, do that for free so that, you know, we're not charging anybody anything. Um, And that's where Autism Awareness Australia came from. I founded that. And uh, so the reason I'm CEO is because no one else would probably do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I started it. So yeah, that's how, that's a quick five minute version. Wow. I mean, look, you've covered quite a lot in there. Yeah. Look, so what did you actually go to uni and study then? So was it something around disability or mental health? Not even close. I went to university to study. I have a degree in political science. Okay. So I have a basic arts degree in political science. And I think I thought I was, I was a very bolshy young student. I think I thought I was going to go and join the Labor Party and spend the rest of my life making sure you know, progressive issues were in the political arena. Of course, I did absolutely none of that and have worked in autism ever since. So I'd say um, autism chose me. I didn't choose it. Well, look, I mean, I had uh, a guest on who has actually uh, become a good friend of mine who works in the NDIS and she has a son who's 12 or 13 now. And he's come to my business a few times and spent the day here. Um, And she was saying in the interview that, like you were saying, in the beginning, there was hardly anything to go and look at or there wasn't a lot of information or, as you say, it was sort of if you knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew something about autism. Um, I mean, nowadays, yes, it is a lot more. We're made more aware of autism and how 
how uh, we can help people with autism. But back then she said, and, and the other thing she said was, you know, uh, we got the diagnosis. And for the first week I was like, right, okay, I'm going to do this. And then she said, and then I had a few days where I just cried and cried and cried because I just didn't know where to go. I felt bad that it was my fault. Um, and, and, you know, all those insecurities, I guess, came forward. And then she went, right, now I know what I've got to do. And then she got into working in disability as a support coordinator. And, yeah, you know, her son's doing really well. And she tells one story of how he, he goes to a school and he doesn't talk a lot. He, he, when he comes here for the day, I would do singing with him. And, and she'd go home and she'd go, were you singing with Jet yesterday? Because yesterday he was singing this song over and over. And I went, oh, actually, yes, I was singing that in the studio. But she said she went to this concert and there was a microphone on the floor and Jet came in. He picked up the microphone and sang this song. And she said, oh, Dan, I just fell apart. She said, because yeah. I didn't even know he would sing a song like that. Yeah, um, lovely. So there's a lot of discovery, isn't there? And there, there is. And I think this is also the really tricky part about talking about autism too, because you better remember, I'm talking about autism, but I'm not somebody with autism. Yeah. So I am the mother of somebody with autism. So, and I have happened to know hundreds, thousands of people in my life who have autism, but I've always got to be really careful how I speak about it in that for some people, um, their autism is absolutely part of their identity. They're very proud to be autistic. They see yep. themselves as autistic. Yep. Um, they don't consider it as a deficit or a disability. It's just a different way of viewing the world. But sometimes um, people like me who are parents who, if when we tell the very true story of how we came into this, there is that chapter that really was the shock and the freak out and the sadness yep. and the upsetting. And that story doesn't negate it's it's not more important than the other side of things which no, is no, we've no. got to remember we've got to be really respectful about autism but when it comes into your life at first no I don't know many parents who are welcoming of it most parents are are scared of it because they wonder what's that going to mean for their child and that's yeah. not you know it's in no way disrespectful to autistic individuals it's just the reality is at the start there's a lot of fears and it's only over time when you see your child learning and doing things and improving and gaining those skills you have the highest high of any parent in the world yep. because you were worried that all those things weren't going to happen. And when they slowly start to happen and maybe not in the right order and maybe slower and, and maybe slightly different, but when they do, they're the best parenting experiences in the world. So yep. it's impossible for me to say to a young 24 year old, Nicole, you know what? Don't worry about it. In 20 years' time, this kid's going to bowl you over Yeah. because I wouldn't have believed it and I didn't understand it. It's only that as, you know, that time, like anything, gives you the ability to look back and, and you know, be a little kinder to yourself maybe. And I guess in reality, like, it's just you've got a few extra worries uh, than most other parents because you'd be going through all those other worries of where he's going to go to school, what's he going to do when he fin finishes school, which are what every parent thinks anyway. They do. I think the, the two biggest differences are that absolutely, yes, you have the same worries as the parents, but it you get more pings yep. in the sense that parents might worry about what school they're going to go, child is going to go to, but they're probably not terribly worried that the school is going to not accept the child. Yeah, or yeah. expel the child or not yeah. be able to cope with the child. So there is the all the funny looks in the supermarket when your child's doing something different or the, the well-meaning but off-the-cuff things people say that hurt. Yeah, there's yeah. that. And there's the second most important thing for most parents of um, children with a disability is none of us can die. Yeah. It's just the reality. It's, yeah. it's if, you know, you just can't die. You need to live forever, which is, of course, 
ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it really is the thing that underpins it for most parents of, of, of people with autism who have disability. And that's probably a really good way of introducing that concept about autism too. You got to remember that autism is a really broad spectrum. So it affects people very differently. Yeah. And, you know, and we don't use these terms anymore, but they used to use terms like high functioning and low functioning. We've moved away from that. But essentially there's a, there's a broad spectrum of how it will present. And for some people, their autism comes along with an enormous amount of disability yep. um, and it, 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 it impedes their independence because of those disabling factors. Whereas some people with autism, really there's not a lot of disability that comes with it. It's, yep. you know, they can be very high achieving people um, who see the world differently, but, uh, you know, have a completely different experience of autism. So what's really hard when talking about autism is you can't just sum it up in, you know, I particularly love the question when somebody asks me what is autism and my answer is always like that's the hardest question to answer. It's a lot of things and it's a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So it's it's hard to wrap it in one bow to talk about it, but it is important to remember that, you know, if there's an old famous saying, if you meet someone with autism, you've met someone with autism, but it doesn't tell you a lot about autism itself yeah look i mean in the studio here um i when a new participant is going to join us i always get sent uh, an enrollment form any behavioral issues blah 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 and i usually skim through them and then we look at the person as an individual and we go okay so we know that but let's just treat them as if none of that exists and we we're quite open when they come in i say look i I said to you before we came on the podcast i've got fibromyalgia so i say look i've got a disability i've got fibromyalgia so if we've all got some sort of disability it doesn't matter because we're all the same we we don't teach you we teacher and student you teach me things i teach you things and it might be after six months i go back and i go oh actually i better look at that form oh okay that explains why that is like that or i might ring a support coordinator and say can you give me some clarification on this sort of behavior but we found that people are really opening up because we're not labeling them with those things. Like one guy, when he started, he said, I've got autism, I've got this, I've got that, blah, blah, blah. I said, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to us what you've got. We accept you as you are. And then we just work out what we can do while we're here. And and we've seen huge growth because they're not thinking, oh, I've got a disability or I've got this. And, you know, you see them when we take them out to pub dinners now, they're a lot more confident ordering. And if they can't be heard saying, excuse me, you know, yep. and that's that's what I wanted to start in the business is to empower people with a disability, mental health issues, to be able to come out and go, "This is me." But I, and I think that's what's changed so much in the you know modern disability world, if you like. Um, if you think back to the bad old days where you know people with disability were largely institutionalized or yep. limited, um, we've flipped the head on that kind of thinking now, which is, okay, a person with a disability can't do something. Is it either do we need to make an accommodation for it or? Can we teach it to them, you know, and and forward we go? Because the expectation is that people with a disability deserve to live the best life they possibly can and we who are in a position to help them do that need to get busy. So, you know, I think think people sometimes get nervous of disability, you know, they get concerned about saying the right thing, not saying the right thing, Um, you know, that they might get it wrong and and therefore they don't engage or they you know they, they it's miss not knowing what they don't know isn't it it's, it's that fear of oh well, yeah what will I do am I in the right position can I talk to yeah. them about this 
It can be overthinking it too. Sometimes people overthink it. Like there is plenty of people who are really more than happy to talk about their autism and how it affects them. But I can tell you in my son Jack's case, he couldn't care less. He thinks autism is something I do for a living. Um, (laughs) He he certainly doesn't feel the need to want to sit down and talk to people about it. And not because he's worried about being, he just knows I'm an autistic guy. Who cares? It's like, you know, mum's blonde, you know, and short, you know, it's just, it's it's who make, it's what makes us, but um, it doesn't always define us. So. Definitely. Um, so I was going to ask you, how is autism diagnosed? Is there like a scale or? Uh, yeah, and that, that's what's really hard about it. At this point in time in Australia, we don't have, There's obviously there's no medical tests, there's no blood tests, there's no scan that can tell you somebody has autism. It, it really occurs typically when children are between the ages of two and four, although some children, some with more language skills might go on to be missed and not diagnosed until they're in primary school. Uh, and indeed, some people will be missed completely and not diagnosed until they're adults. But for the vast majority of people with autism, they'll be diagnosed um, around that sort of preschool years when we realise that they're not quite meeting their developmental milestones. But really, it is, it's an observational test to see yeah. a questionnaire with the parents and an observation of the child to see exactly what they are doing and not doing um, that's causing the problem. And one of the projects we've just launched at Autism Awareness Australia at the moment is called Autism What Next? And it's designed exactly to help people going through that process. So whether it be a parent or an older individual who thinks, oh, I think an autism diagnosis might be at play here, we've just built a digital pathway to sort of send you in the right direction of exactly what you need to do um, and sort of in what order to get your house in order. Because for those of us who have been around longer, who are older, we can look back at it and say, oh, my God, I wish I had done that or not done that and wasted so much time doing that or, God, if I could have just had this information right in front of me at the time of diagnosis. It just, it's a really empowering thing. We've managed to get funding with for the federal government, the Department of Social Services, which we're incredibly grateful for because it just means it's a free tool. Yeah. So anybody can use it, any family can use it. So, um, and, and that was it. We just, you know, the information we get at the time of diagnosis up until recently wasn't that much better than what we got in 1999 for Jack. Right. So it was, and if you think of all the resources that are available, um, but really essentially people were left to, you know, Dr. Google to work out what to do next. So it was really us trying to address that by saying, no, no, we've got experts in autism. We're going to bring them in here and we're going to tell you, you know, the shortcut, yeah, hopefully yeah. the shortcut into making your life better and, and your child's life more independent. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. I mean, look, yeah, as you say, when a diagnosis of any type is uh, diagnosed, I know with my fibro, it was like I was told I had fibromyalgia and that was about it. And it was like, well, what the hell do I do now? So having something like that together uh, that people can just go to and go, okay, this is what I need to do. It makes it so much simpler for them, doesn't it, Paul, for everybody involved? It does. And actually, the reason it came about was because um, Jack was diagnosed at the same time my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. And it was only years later was I able to look back and say, what a different experience that was. Like, you know, mum got handed the Here's Your Breast Cancer Journey booklet and, you know, had a doctor to come and see a couple of days later and booked in for a scan. And there was action station, you know, like we know you have cancer and this is what we do. And in our case, it was Jack has autism. Good luck with that. 
Yeah. So what I saw is, well, hang on a second, we need the same thing. Okay, it's not as straightforward a, a pathway. You know, yeah. it, it, there's a lot of factors that mean it depends what advice we're going to have. But the truth is still there, that we need to get something to you free immediately that you can have. Um, it's, it's not expensive. It's not hard to do. If you've got internet access, you, you can see it and you're immediately given a guide. That's That was really important and the thinking behind autism what next. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes it so much simpler for everybody. So I wanted to go back to when you first started because you said you worked at uh, the or you started the Lizard. The Lizard Centre, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lizard Centre. And and that was based on ABA, which is Applied Behaviour Analysis. Yeah. Now, I I mean, I've studied as a counsellor and I hadn't really heard about this, so I wondered, I know it's a structured sort of thing to teach in a certain way. Could you explain how it works? Yeah, and it's funny because, um, you know, it it can be, for some in the community, it's considered controversial. Um, So I'll give you the two-second version of the controversy. Um, It's essentially just a teaching methodology. So it's breaking down everything a child needs to learn into really little steps and incrementally introducing them so that you're slowly increasing a child's abilities and skills and teaching them all the sorts of things that they're going to need in their life. Yep. And that's incredibly important. I guess it's controversial for some because some people in the community feel that that is uh, people imposing change on a child. Their view is that the world should be more accepting of people with autism and if you want to do X, Y, and Z, you should be allowed to do X, Y, and Z. Yep. And that, that we're imposing change on these children, which is, of course, absolutely not what we're doing. We're, in, in fact, it's, it's, it's one of the kindest things you can do to somebody with autism is teach them skills that they're finding difficult isn't it and just they're diff- going to need in real life. Yeah, isn't it just a different way of learning? Absolutely. That's all it yeah. is. It's, it, it was always so simple to me. And, and it, it was an, even just as a mum when I started doing these lessons with Jack, I just got, oh, right, so he doesn't know it. And then we show him how to do it. And then he's got it. Yeah. Great. One less thing he has to worry about. And it comes down to the most basic things, like the ability to go to the toilet on your own. I yep. think it's pretty important and it and it goes a lot to adding dignity in your life in the long oh, run. Definitely. So so I think that's a skill worth teaching. Yeah. And and if we have to break it down into little little sets to be able to teach it and it takes a little bit longer, so be it. So look, I've I've been such a fan of applied behavior analysis for so many years. And um it, the great part about it is I didn't have to study to be one. I just went and hired about 60 of them. <laughs> <laughs> come in and work with kids all across the country so so i it's it's a a huge part of our background and my thinking and i appreciate some people don't think like that and they might not choose it for their children which is absolutely fine you don't have to but it's important to understand or i think it's important to understand that regardless of what your thinking is and what your philosophy is what do we want most for our child with a disability we want them to have the best life ever yeah. and the funnest life ever and the happiest life ever. Yeah. So what are they going to want to do that's going to make it fun and happy for them? And we're working towards it. And, and for me and mine, having an independent life 
from your parents. Yes. And That's having- what I was just going to say to you because you said before, you know, like parents are expected to live forever if they've got a pers- uh, child with a disability, which, you know, is nonsense. Um, but teaching these skills prepares them for later in life when parents aren't around. That's another reason we started this business here was we wanted to create friendships for people that were, that's why we're only small because we want to really create friendships that when mum or dad or brother, sister, auntie, they all pass on, they've still got a network of people that they can call up and say, hey, how are you going? Can we go to a movie or something? Because I found in disability, there's not a lot of true connections in friendships. And I thought if I could create that situation, then there's a lot more chance that these guys that come here would have peers and friends that they can rely on further down the track or move in with and stuff like that. It's totally true. And apart from the fact that, you know, you don't think this when your child's three, but eventually you're not the coolest person in your child's life. Oh, yeah. You're really not. You're far from it. So, you know, but but it takes, you know, and, and the reason I'm such a passionate advocate for it is because if you could see videos of what Jack was doing when he was two and three and you could see the life he has now, and I know that everything that went along the path to make that happen, you know, we were there every day for it. So I don't take any of it for granted. I understand the hard work that is involved in supporting for a lot of people on the autism spectrum, but I also know the freaking great outcome you can have and and how worth it it is. Maybe other parents when their kids get to 25 probably totally stop doing this, but my husband and I haven't, is that we look at everything he does and go, oh, my God, he's amazing. He's yeah. so amazing. Or something that he says or thinks or does and none of it was we could see when he was two or three. And now we would love the kinds of conversations, things we thought we were going to miss out on. It's different. Don't get me wrong. It's different. Um, he doesn't have a mild version of autism. So um, it, it's not like I'm, I'm speaking from a place where I don't understand the disability income with it. I absolutely do understand it. But I guess we always chose to look at the really optimistic side and how could we help Jack and what was the best thing we could do for Jack? And if he's happy, we're happy. And look, I was saying to you before we, we started recording that I actually watched that documentary. I think it was 2014, maybe was it 2004? Yeah. I can't remember the dates, but I was blown away by how much just in that hour, I think it was of how much you went from here to from A to B. It was phenomenal. And, you know, like I said to you, I want to get the best out of everybody who comes here. And when I watched that, I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, I didn't think this, I, I didn't even know about that, you know? So seeing something like that is really empowering to parents or anyone. And, look, and that was, that was actually the reason behind it. So we did, uh, it was for ABC Australian story and we did one in 2009 and then we did another one in 2014. And particularly the one in 2014 was when Jack was graduating high school and he'd had an amazing high school experience. He went to a great high school. He was really well supported and he was really happy. And we wanted to show, it wasn't about us, we wanted to show what it could look like if people designed it the right way. Yeah. So this is not just about something that we did as a family. This is something that anybody could do. A really good service provider could do. Like all you have to do is a commitment to wanting a good outcome, uh, to building skills and building happiness and dignity in a person with a disability. And if if you want, if you say yes to all of those things, you can absolutely go and do it. So this was just really an example to show one way it could be done. There's many ways it can be done, but this is one way it can be done because sometimes there are organizations who really want to do something or they, they want to be, better at something but they just don't know how to start 
And, and oftentimes you've got to start, you know what, I was giving a speech this morning to Amazon, right? I think it's the richest company in the world to one of their disability events. And, you know, they were asking the same question. What do we need to do to support people with disabilities who work here? And my answer was, you just have to want to. Yeah. Because the solutions will come. Yeah. There just has to be a genuine commitment from the top down that we believe we're going to do this. And I think for those of us who work in the disability sector, we're all a bit like-minded, right? We all, you know, want to try and find a way to make this better for people. So yeah. we work on solutions to do that. It's then our job to try and transfer those solutions and, and increase that awareness to other parts of the community who haven't had to consider disability. So, you know, there's lots of things you don't consider if it's not on your plate. I'm sure you didn't think a lot about fibromyalgia before it hit you. No, and look, back when I was probably about 20 and I heard about yuppie flu, which was chronic fatigue, I just thought, oh, just get out of bed and get to work. And when I got it, my dad was like, just get Get out of bed and get to work and I go dad if I could get out of bed I would go to work but I'm exhausted but exactly. I got through it and I think yeah you look for the solution I mean with fibromyalgia I was on a lot of Facebook groups everyone was and they're all on their own journey but I found it was all about um, what medications they were taking um, how they couldn't get up how that was their life and so I went off most of my medications except for the thyroid one and one other um, and I just started doing a little bit around the house every day and building myself up the stamina. I went back to work part-time. As I said to you, I went and did my counselling diploma while I could only work part-time. And I changed my whole life around to suit that if I couldn't be physical in a disability job, I could be a counsellor. But the thing is, the more, I, the more momentum I gained by doing all these different things, fibromyalgia affects me probably a month split up through the year now. It's yeah, a day right. here, a day there. Right. And, you know, th there's lots of things we can do in disability um, that I think a lot of places look, and, and this isn't really negative towards some providers, but I find that some places now it's almost like bring them in and they can sit here and we'll, we'll try and do some things during the day. But there's not that focus on what can we do? What do they like doing? How can we improve that? And to me, if I get one little change in someone during the day, that makes my whole week. And to see the excitement on them that they've achieved something or they've said something and I've gone, wow, where did that come from? And they're like, oh, well, I was just thinking about what you were talking about. And it's like, you know, little changes make huge differences and for families and then families go, wow, this is amazing. You know, and I, I, don't I think know that, if that comes from a mindset in terms of service providers, and it's it's people who do it as a job or people who do it as a profession. Right? Exactly right. And by that, I don't mean you know a profession that you've studied for. It's, it doesn't need to be that necessarily. Certainly, I didn't study for any of this. But you it have was, to have the passion. Yeah, and and the enough emotional intelligence to understand, and and you know, I think when it comes to disability service providers, because we have such a work force issue, such a shortage of people to work in the field, oftentimes service providers may take somebody who is okay, as opposed to amazing, yeah. right? And you need amazing in the yeah. life of people with a disability. And, you know, that's why I really encourage families is oftentimes, you know, they want therapists, they want people that are coming in and working with their child and helping their child. And by all means, yes, but don't settle for somebody who isn't a right fit for your child just because you can't find that person. You just can't find them right now. But it's it's really important for everything from self-esteem to how the family's going to, you know, what the outcome's going to be for this person. It's like um, it was recently described to me as 
a person told me that they found a support worker for their daughter who loves swimming. She loves doing lap swimming at the local yeah. swimming pool. And they'd been looking for a support worker and they had, you know, one person complained about the chlorine and the other person said, I don't really swim very much, but I'm happy to sit on the side and watch her swim. So the mother all of a sudden had a, a, a brainwave. And again, this is the benefit of the NDIS. She had a brainwave and, and thought, why the hell am I looking in disability for somebody to go swimming with my daughter? Yeah. Why don't I go down to the local swimming pool and find somebody who's interested in working with somebody with a disability? Yeah. And now she has a swim partner and they both love swimming and this is what they do together. And so it's going to your point you were talking earlier about getting out into the community and building those circles of support that aren't necessarily mum and dad, Yeah. Um, but they're, they're support organisations and people. You you build the village around your child. Yep. You know, that famous it takes a village st- you know, uh, sentence, I always say, yeah, sure, it takes a village, but when you've got a kid with a disability, the village dissipates, the villagers go, you yeah. know, they're missing. So yeah. you need to put your own village together to make sure that you've got a team because you're allowed to, um, I talk a lot about this, even though I was really bad about it when I was a young mum, but um, it's really important for parents to look after their own mental health as well yeah. and their own well-being. You're usually so panicked, so trying to get everything that your child needs and juggling schools and therapists and everything that needs to be doing that you, often we can burn the candle at both ends. Definitely. And it's not great for the person with a disability if everybody around them is stressed. It's going to have a terribly negative effect. So it, it, they're just important things for parents to think of too. I've found as well is that um, as parents and the person with a disability start to get older into their 40s and 50s, because um, some parents have been so enmeshed in their life, getting them to where they are, then it becomes hard for them to let go when the person with a disability wants that independence, wants to move into either a group home or a home with a friend or something like that. It's really hard for that parent when they've done everything and been everything to then go, it's okay, I can just let them go. And look, it might be the same for just parents, but I've seen with a couple of parents, they're like, but it's part of my identity now. And that's a good thing because they've worked so hard, but it's also hard for them to then create their own life as they're older. Yeah, and I think this is a really common one. I say um, when women are having a baby, there's a really famous book called What to Expect When You're Expecting. Right. And for whatever reason, women go mental and sit down for nine months and read it page by page. That's dog-eared and then they read it again and then they go back over it. And then they get the next one, which is, I think, what to expect in the first year or something like that. But people obsess about their pregnancies and spend a lot of time. And these days it's probably not even a book. It's probably a podcast. But I'm just old. Whereas I think we forget to have a transition program for adults. Yeah. Like, it's time to go get a life, mum, and I'm including myself in this, which is, okay, what would you have done? And I I have another son, so I I could give you the example. um, Both of them go out with friends to the pub. Yeah. The youngest one, my son without autism, actually works in a pub. And the pub closes at midnight, and by the time he gets on the bus and comes home, I've fallen asleep. I haven't heard him come in one night. Right. He's 20. I don't know. Is he alive in the morning? Yeah, seems to be. Uh, bedroom door's closed. Hope he's behind it. You know, like he's 20 and gorgeous and he's totally got his stuff figured out and I can just go to bed. Yep. But I haven't once yet fallen asleep when Jack's out at the pub. Right. And I know it's wrong and I know 
and Jack's older. (laughs) You know, I know that's wrong and I know that's weird, but, you know, I give myself an easy time about it. It's like I'm sure one day I will fall asleep. What if I be so old I'll fall asleep in my chair? Um, But I, I, I think, again, it's just it's just a factor to consider and we parents that's the problem we've been in this group together and it's hard to leave that group you're in the disability group and not everybody understands your you know trip so far so you know I I think look parents do need that transition your kids need it for themselves as well you know I'm I'm quite sure and I'm always really cognizant to to whenever I'm doing um any media or interviews and talking about autism i'm just always really cognizant jack's not around because i'm quite sure he's sick of me talking about it yeah and look you're right i mean as a parent you've probably had to fight harder not just yourself i'm saying in general parents with people with a disability they've had to fight so hard to maybe get the funding to get the right school to get a work placement a day placement uh, social activities, you know, that it, it does become part of your character because you've had to do all that. And there weren't people around you that were saying, hey, I'll help you with that. Now with NDIS, National Disability Insurance Scheme, there's a lot more opportunity with support coordinators. And I think there's psychosocial um I don't know what they are, coordinators, who can actually uh, look for those services for you and bring them all in and then say to the participant, hey, look, this is what I found for you. Do any of these interest you? We can go out and meet these people. You can see what you like. And if you don't like them, you can move on because that was another problem. I think back, say, 20 years ago, people were sent to or enrolled in a day program and it didn't really matter if they liked it or not there was no choice 100%. Um, and, and you were locked into that whereas now I mean I say to my guys here look hey if you ever decide you don't like it here that's fine you know yeah I'd miss you you might miss us but you know we need to move on and find different things that find that we find interesting and keep us going so you know luckily no one has left because they all love this service <laughs> but you know I, I think now there's a lot more places that are aware we have to give a better program otherwise these people are just going to leave because you can't just have people sitting in a chair doing nothing uh, and I think that's why a few of the the older sort of service providers struggled so much at the start of the NDIS because they'd never had to market their business in their life no. you know it was block funding and then you go and that's how much money you get. Nobody thought of anything. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, what do you mean? We have to be good and we have to market and tell people about us and and have a value proposition and all these things that they always should have had but never did. So the NDIS has radically changed the space. And, and always when I'm talking about it, because I'm always complaining about it, so um, <laughs> that's my job, you know. I, I say that, you know, the NDIS has just been the greatest bit of social infrastructure change in Australia in, in the last 50 years. It's Other than Medicare, it's amazing. So I, I'm a huge fan and proponent of it. I, I still think that means those of us who are in the industry should speak up when yeah. it's not right. And I, I constantly sort of say panel beat it into shape. You know, it, it, we love it, but it's, you know, it's not perfect yet and it's no. always going to have tricks, but life has so changed. And it, even just when I'm talking to young parents these days, even the idea that you had to put a full program together and pay for it yourself. And that was only if you were even lucky enough to be able to have the money where you could pay for it. You know, think yeah. of all of the, the kids who didn't get the right support because there just simply wasn't any funding, you know. So it's so changed so dramatically um, in the last few years. It, you know, it's fabulous. It, it, it's just one of those things, that, you know, newer people to the NDIS won't remember the bad old days and maybe that's a good thing. 
Yeah, there are so many good things about the NDIS. There are a few things that aren't running properly, but um, as you say, I'm sure that'll all get ironed out in the next few years. It, it's got a look, as you said as well, they weren't prepared for the amount of support workers and people they needed on the ground to help people with a disability. And when when it first started, I actually thought to myself, they're not prepared for this at all. And then you'd get all these people complaining, I can't get a support worker. Well, that's because there aren't enough, you know. I think we probably had about a quarter of what was needed. And to find people who are actually... Well, they don't even really need a qualification, but to be experienced in some way of helping someone with a disability and having that empathy, compassion um, and the drive, you know, because working in disability, it's not always a happy let's jump around and have fun day. Some days are harder than others, but you have to be able to adapt and be able to work through those issues and make sure that the participant is still always at the heart of whatever you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 been such a fundamental shift in how we we manage disability and treat disability, and um, you know we're doing really well. Have we got a ways to go, both in NDIS, yes, and also I, the area that I think we're doing well. The two areas that I think we're doing really badly in still, uh, I still think we're doing really badly in the school years. Yeah, I think that's very patchy about you know our levels of inclusion and how we're supporting kids with disability in us in our public education system and then the second area that i think we're doing very poorly in is employment yeah um you know and making sure that you know for those who want a job are able to get a job i think they're two areas that still need an awful lot of work to go into them before we can say our job is done and look i think also with uh, employment i think that people with a disability if they can't perform at the same pace as someone without a disability they should still be paid a reasonable hourly rate um, because you're saying that you're providing them a job but then you're paying them five dollars twenty an hour which is just it's demeaning and it's disheartening and it shouldn't be happening in this day and age yeah i can't even believe the legislation still exists that allows people to do it you know it's it's just a shocker and you know there are plenty of international examples where you know um specialist supports that have gone into workplaces one really famous one um we were talking about this morning is the company walgreens in the united states and one of the senior executives there was uh, a father of somebody with an intellectual disability and autism and and he went on to introduce uh one of their a series of supports and accessibility in terms of work in one of their factories and and went on and set a quota and in in you know had x number of people with a disability work there and it ended up becoming quite famous because it was the most productive walgreens factory that they had across yeah. the united states yeah they had the lowest level of people taking the day off yeah. they had the highest engagement and, yeah. and you know it just ended up being such a huge success and we were talking about the importance of those types of stories being told is that other organizations can then say well, why don't we have a crack at that or yeah. you know could we try even a smaller scale of that to see how it goes and then build up from there so look there's still lots of innovation change etc that has to happen in disability i mean it certainly has changed radically since since I came to it sort of 20-something years ago, but um, we, we still have a ways to go. When someone's got a disability, intellectual, physical, doesn't matter. When they like attending a place, going to a place, you find that they rarely take a day off sick. They might have a day off to go to the doctors or they might take some time off to go on a holiday. But when they've got that passion, the same as what we've got, the passion for providing something good, they don't want to take a day off because they love where they're going. They love the people they're interacting with. They love the uh, things that they're creating when they're there, you know. So 
Yeah, I, I think, look, last year I wanted, and we've been in COVID, so it's been hard to do, but I wanted to try and get a grant to work on community inclusion because I still think we've got some younger people uh, at cafes and restaurants who don't fully understand, and I wanted to see if I could try and run some sort of campaign that would uh, encourage people to look at people with a disability with fresh eyes and not go, oh, this is what I've heard, but say this is what I'm seeing and this is what what is out there. Yeah. Yeah, but sometimes I think it comes down to the support being appropriate too. So, like, in terms of, you know, can you boil the ocean? No, you can't. So what can you do? And I just remember one day I saw a disability support worker because these two young girls, not that their age matters necessarily, but they were just two quite young girls in their early 20s, little tiny things. They were very short. And they got out of this bus and they had six or eight, I can't remember, uh, adult males with a disability. And they parked in a big, lovely park here in Sydney. And I was walking my dog and I saw all the guys get out and the girls basically let them go and sit in the sun. They didn't interact with anyone. No one interacted with one another. There wasn't a walk that they were going on. It actually was really quite hot that day. And what bothered me most is all those guys are out there without a hat. It was like plus 30 something. And I just remember thinking, what a shitty provider. Yeah. Like that. And, and by the way, the guys were of the size proportion of the girls. The reason I'm bringing the size up is if any one of them wanted to abscond or, or there was an issue or yeah. a problem with any one of them, neither of these girls were necessarily going to be able to manage that. Yeah. But such was their expectation on these individuals that going outside and sitting in the sun was all they felt they needed to do. Yeah. You know, if you wanted to do that, you could do that at home. You don't, you know, you could do that down at your local park. That's, it doesn't require, that's not an outing. That's not inclusion into the community. No, 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 no. That, Killing a few hours, getting paid to have people sit in the sun. And that's going back to what you said earlier about uh, people who come into the job because they want to make a difference and people come into the job because they just want a job, you know, because, you know, if you take someone out to a park, this we're doing one in a couple of weeks. We're going to the Dandenongs here in Melbourne and we've planned that we're going to do a barbecue. We're going to stop at a pub on the way and have a beer. We're going to do, you know, and so the whole day is planned out and the guys are all like, oh, wow, we're going to do all that. Yes, we're going to do all that. We went to Hillsville um, when we weren't in lockdown in Melbourne. And then when we were there, we had lunch and we said, what do you want to do? And a couple of them said, can we drive on to uh, Warburton? And I went, all right, let's see how far away it is. All right, it's half an hour let's go to Warburton so we raced to Warburton we went in a cafe we had a hot chocolates coffee sat by the fire then we had a walk along and looked at everything in Warburton then we got back in and raced home because we had to be back by four but we squeezed as much as we could into that day because it was things they hadn't done and things we hadn't done and we wanted to share that experience together and it's getting the guys to go up and talk to the people uh, at the counter and say oh can I have this thing and that thing and getting them to talk back you know because I heard one story of a guy went out with a carer and the person behind the counter spoke to the carer and said, what does he want? And she said, ask him. And she said, oh, I didn't think he would understand me. And she said, but you haven't even tried. Yeah, there's a great campaign that was done by some colleagues of ours in Melbourne, a group called Amaze, and they they did a a great campaign last year, which was called Changing, or I can't remember, Changing the Assumptions or Changing Your Thinking About Disability. And they they filmed an ad and it was just that experience is that the person sitting at the table with the person with a disability and the waitress comes over and talks to the parent. Yeah. And it was just kind of like, oh, think about that. That's really, and but again, that's where a good support worker and a good parent 
thinks to themselves, is that ultimately the outcome I want for this person? Yeah, now, yeah, like in yeah. some cases, if there is no communication, we can find other ways. But but really that's where you have to think, okay, they're not there yet. They might not have that skill yet. What do I need to do to be able to give this person the ability to, now whether it be a quick word with, you know, a waitress or a cafe before you arrive or making sure you use a similar one. Like when we were, when Jack was young and we were practicing going to the shop, we used to go to the same deli where this yeah. little old Italian guy he was so lovely. He knew exactly what we were doing. He knew exactly. And he was in, I can't think how much bacon and ham we bought from that man over the years, but, but really it got, he would know that if we're prompting Jack to come up with the ice cream. Don't look at us. Don't talk to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, get them. And, and he became part of the therapy team. So when you're talking before about building these circles in the community, they're not always paid support. Sometimes it just might be a neighbour, somebody in your local community, the person that works at the local library, whatever happens in that person with a disability's day-to-day life, who could you identify that might just be able to do one thing? And yes. that one thing is can make a real difference. And I'll give you an example. We live in a, um, a street in, in a city and down the end of our street is a, I guess you call them a boarding house. So, you know, those old fashioned boarding houses. Yep. A lot of people in there have a disability, but, you know, some people have been homeless and so on and so forth. Anyway, sometimes people come and go, but there's been a few guys there that have lived there for the, well, they've been there the whole two years we've lived here. So, you know, you get to see some faces and you get to know some people. And I, myself and, and another neighbour of ours, she's been here longer, just always get into the habit of always saying hi to them. And if you know the name, say hi to the name. Yeah. Right. So that there's, it's these tiny little things that you can do that break down the stereotype that, oh, that's a person with a disability. That's a bit odd. If you say hello and make that person feel included in the community that they live in, yeah. chances are, have you modeled that behavior to your other neighbor or to somebody else at the dog park or to somebody else that will go, Oh yeah, I should probably do that. That really costs me nothing Yeah, yeah, yeah. and shows my humanity and shows, makes those people feel like they're part of this community because they live on our street. Yeah. And look, uh, one of the guys that I'm a guardian for, um, we, we used to go to the pub every second Wednesday night and he's a slightly deaf and he doesn't speak very clearly. So what I did was I went up to the lady behind the bar and I said, look, he's going to come up and order. He's going to order a Coke, a chicken parma and chips and salad. I said, now you won't understand what he's saying. That's why I'm telling you so that then you can say to him, can you speak a bit louder? And over a couple of weeks, he started to pronounce the words better and they went along with it every week. And it was amazing the difference in him because I didn't have to order for him. And then he'd give his money. And a couple of times he walked away without the change. I go, no, 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 come on, you change. And they give him the change. But you know, he learned that skill and it might be a small thing and some people might go, oh, well, that's nothing. But it was something that made him empowered and he could then go up and order his own meal knowing that they understood him. When new people came on, we did the same thing. Hey, this is what he's going to ask for. You won't understand it. But they all went along with it and they all helped him. And he got to know them really well. One Christmas he went there in a Santa's hat, you know, because he, he was so happy to be going there and everyone knowing him and everyone came up and said hello. So, yeah, but it's that's, that's, a, that's a very core of capacity building is what you're doing there. So you yeah. recognised that this person has difficulty doing something, but it would be really empowering if they could do it themselves and they didn't need you to do it for them. But So you don't just say, can this person do something or can't they do something? You say, well, they can't right now. Doesn't mean we can't help them to get there or to get 
half of the way there or an approximation of the way there. I mean, I think the goal should be for people with disability is to have the most dignified and independent life they can have. Yeah. Like that that's what you want for everybody with a disability and their families. So I think if you're working from that knowledge base, you then, and I see this sometimes particularly with families who have children with more severe autism, it is, it's really a completely different thing and it, it comes with an enormous amount of challenges, but yeah. the goal should be the same, which is yeah. what can we do? How many skills can we give this individual to lead that happiest life, healthiest life, best life that they possibly can? And sometimes when you're up against it as the parent or indeed the service provider and you think, oh my God, this is so difficult. This is a really difficult case. You just have to think okay one step we've 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 gone too far we need to come back and support this person better where they are yep. to get them to that next little level and that next little level and so on and so forth when we started this business my business partner had come from a background of teaching uh she was um she had a beauty school and she couldn't get her head around it in the beginning that we weren't looking at what the result was we were looking at how the learning was so it wasn't like we had to tick off okay they've done all this this week it was about how much further have they got towards that goal and it might be i'll use this as an example that they want to paint um landscapes and you know they're not very good at painting the blue sky but by the end of six months they've learned how to paint the blue sky and that is a phenomenal uh, achievement for them and it's something that they've learned slowly so small progress is better than no progress at all yeah and, and i think that's certainly that's what the, was always the attraction i had to aba because applied behavior analysis because as a as a treatment methodology it constantly took data so you'd be able to look at a skill you introduced and say oh that took me three weeks for him to get that one and then the data would show you that next time around it only took two weeks to get a different skill and so on and so forth. So yeah. you were tracking, you know, it's not good enough with people with a disability just to say, oh, we want to give them skills and them to be better. Yeah. It, it, that's easy to say. Of course we want all of that. It's a motherhood statement. We need a plan to get there. Yes, What's definitely. your plan to get there? And I, I see lots of people, particularly in the autism space, that talk about the importance of autism awareness. Well, of course, I think that's important. And autism acceptance, of course, I think that too. But that ain't going to cut it. Yeah, that's not life in the real world. We have to come back a step and say, how do we best support individuals with autism to have the best life they can in their local community? And, and that needs planning. It needs a lot of planning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, as well, it is an individualised planning and skill yeah. base, isn't it? It's not like, totally. you know, okay, here's 10 people with a disability. We're all going to train them to do this. because. And that's another thing I like about individualised uh, programming and and running programs is that everybody does it at their own pace but they also learn off each other when they're seeing what other people are doing so you learn a little bit from other people but you're not pushed to be producing something in a time restriction that's exactly right yeah no no we've come a long way in how we know how to help people with autism you know Again, you just have to remember whenever you're thinking and talking about disability and talking about autism is it's, there's an individual behind all that. So you need to work out what supports they need and make a plan for that. But, you know, generalisations don't really work. It's, it's, it's working out what that individual needs. And it's not hard. It really isn't. And people say to me, oh, no, you have to be in statistics if you're a counsellor. But to me, statistics are schmistics, you know, because I just think if we looked at 10 people, we're not going to get the same outcome for those 10 people. So how do we scale them on a statistic? We can scale each individual, but everybody's completely different. We can't say you're the same because you're not. No, exactly, exactly. Nicole, I have had an absolute 
fantastic time talking to you. It's been amazing. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. It's nice to nice to tell the story and, and talk a little bit about autism. I'm always talking about autism. I do quite like it. But um, the more people that know about it, the more people that know. Because that's the thing, that if your audience are listening today, if you don't know someone with autism, you probably will in yeah. your life at some point. So just understanding it and, and not being afraid of it is the most important thing. And this is why I wanted to speak to you as well, because as I said, the person I did an interview with, I think it was about 12 months ago, I got feedback from people saying, can you do some more on autism? I'm not sure about autism. I don't know where to go. I don't know what it's about. And, you know, as I said, I work with a few people in the studio with autism, but even from my point of view, learning from you today, I've learned so many different things that I'd sort of gone, oh, actually, I should try that. Oh, I haven't thought of that. You know, so there's always learning for everybody. Well, look, our two websites, we we have two autismawareness.com.au, but we also have autismwhatnext.com.au. And both of them, obviously, the what next is designed around people who are really new to autism and and need to take it slow. But our main autism awareness um, Australia website, which you can just easily will come up and Google is honestly, it is a wealth of information and 15 years in the making. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. And um, so there's, there's lots in there, lots of videos for people to watch, lots of information for them to get. So don't be scared of it. Just come and dive in and find out. Okay, Nicole, well, look, thank you so much for giving me your time. Um, Time is valuable. And look, we've spoken for almost an hour. I think we've covered so many different things around autism. um, And I hope that lots of people listening will find something in that that will educate them and help them learn um, what autism is about and how important your Autism Awareness Australia is. Um, And look, with your background and you starting this and getting government funding a free service, I mean, that's phenomenal and that's brilliant for people to be able to get in contact with your organisation. Thanks for having me, Dan. No worries. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Well, that was another episode of Life Changes You. If you want to contact us, we're available on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And we also have a website, lifechangesyou.com.au. So until next time, take care of each other and thanks for listening.